Red Dice Diaries podcast, a rambling journey through the wonderful world of RPGs by a longtime GM and player. The music at the start of this podcast is Shinigami by Tarek, used under Creative Commons license. Welcome to this podcast about getting a campaign started. I'm joined by Lloyd, Dennis and Matthew, who are going to have me talk about this topic. We're going to mull over a few things we think are important when it comes to starting a campaign for whatever RPG you happen to be running. So, first of all, I'm going to ask all of you guys if you can talk a bit about your sort of history, just very briefly, with running campaigns. So, Lloyd, I know you said that you don't tend to run a lot of campaigns, but I presume you have run campaigns before. Yes, um, I usually, I'm usually specialising in running shorter campaigns, about four to five sessions is about my sweet spot. Every now and then I will run something fairly longer, but that requires more prep. But my speciality is always four to five, sometimes even three sessions of campaigns. Okay, so how about yourself, Dennis? What about yourself for running campaigns? Um, <clears throat> well, I started out with uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, then um, into Sharon. Then into Rollmaster, <laughs> and then into GURPS, and few stranglers along the way uh, of shorter duration. But yeah, all of these were, I guess, longer campaigns. Okay, that's cool. So how about yourself, Matthew? Unmuted. Um, despite popular belief, I do actually run campaigns as well as short-form one-shots. Um, I'm currently running a 5th edition campaign that's um, ported over from 4th edition, which has been running since 2013. Oh, nice. Um, I've also ran a um, three-session uh, adventure for Call of Cthulhu 7th edition for people who've never played RPGs before. That was a lot of fun. Cool. And most recently, in the last year, I ran a Numenera campaign which um, we stopped at six sessions, and we'll pick up again probably later in the year. Okay, brilliant, thank you very much. Um, for myself, I tend to run finite campaigns, so campaigns where they have like a big sort of plot running in the background, and that plot determines the course of the campaign. So I'm trying to hit that sort of sweet spot between like running shorter games and running a campaign because I find that when you just run an open-ended campaign, it can just sort of taper off and sort of run out of steam. So that's sort of my preference for running campaigns. Okay, so I've got some topics prepared for this podcast, guys. So the first of all, the first topic is how do you decide what game to run? And under that, I've put one of the things to consider is why you want to run a campaign. Now, for me personally, one of the benefits of running a campaign is that you get to see your characters develop and you get to explore sort of longer stories than may be possible with a one-shot. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a good one-shot, but one-shots tend to be quite immediate, you know, like we're dealing with this, we're dealing with Y, and you go full ball for that, whereas you tend to get a more sort of rounded approach if you're running campaigns. So... Over to you guys. What would you? Why would you guys choose to run a campaign? What would be the advantages for you? Well, I'll jump in right ahead. Um, well, I always think asterisks. This applies to every point I'll make. Probably always talk to your players about what they'd like to play, and what kind of things are into that. That's an obvious thing. Just get that out the way. Um, it, it really for me it'd be t- 
two, between two things is, is there something out there that I can tell an interesting story with? Is there a game which I think the mechanics will fit the players that are in front of me? Will they enjoy the game? Will they... <laughs> Will they have a good time playing it? You know, if if all the players in front of me have no interest in, say, horror, then picking Cthulhu is not really a great option. Uh, the same, but if if they have absolutely no preference, then you know, open season, go with what you or go with what you feel at the time. I actually have something slightly related to that ish in a kind of way. I think I was really good, Matthew. I really appreciate that that those those clearly very well thought out thoughts of the games you've run that I have never seen you do. Without me, you liar. When it comes to running a campaign, usually the thing that you should decide on is what is the one thing I want from the campaign? So building a campaign is always about what kind of people you're playing with, right? But yeah. you always should have a reason why you want to do it. And once you get that reason, you will know what you need to set in stone, what mustn't change, and what you want in order to play. So it could be like, I want to try this mechanic out because I'm not, I'm playing a game with it. Or I want to run a story in this particular setting. Or even I want to run a story for these people. It can be as simple as that. As long as you've got that set in stone, you can build on that for your campaign running. So that's the first thing you need to establish: is what rules can, do you not want to change? What is your reasoning, and how are you going to build on your reasoning to start your campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of flows on to the, the next point I've got written down, which is how much do you think the choice of game system and obviously campaign background as well affects the suitability for running a campaign? Uh, or, or do you think that with a bit of adaption, pretty much any rule set can be used for a campaign? How much does the choice... Like when you sit down and say, right, right I'm going to run a campaign game, how much does that affect your choice of what system and what setting you want to run your game in? If at all. I, th I think it's important here to sort of discuss, when we say campaign, like, we obviously we, we know what a one-shot is. That's a single session story wrapped up in a one, you know, people turn up, they play, they finish, story done. Yeah, in one, in one session unless Lloyd's running it. Yeah, he's a, he's a two session, he's a cliffhanger guy. I hate you. But, so in a campaign, are we talking... You know, five to six sessions, six, you know, six to twelve, twelve to twenty, because that is important when you're thinking about the system you're picking. Because some, you know, favour a longer, slower burn than others. So, what what do we mean in the campaign? Do we mean a couple of sessions? Do we mean you know finishing a storyline, getting to the players to a certain point, and I say saying like the leveling up system, depending on what what you're going with. You know, what is it we are saying as a campaign? What do we mean by that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, you, it is. It is better to sort of like define these terms before we get too heavily into it. I mean, for, I mean, I'm sure you guys will have different definitions, but for me, the definition of a campaign is it's a game that encompasses many different sort of storylines. It might have one sort of overarching storyline, but within that, there's lots of different storylines. Or as I said before, a one shot tends to be like right where you're the heroes, there's this threatening your village, you go and deal with it. Or there's this situation coming up, there's this baddie, you go and deal with it. And that's the entire focus of the game. Whereas to me, uh, a campaign incorporates lots of different storylines. And I'm not saying that one-shots can't have sort of subplots in them. But I would say it's that, and there's an element of sort of character growth and progression in it. That, for me, is what makes a campaign. Actually, I'm going to cut halfway through there and say, for me, what makes a campaign is... How many sessions are you planning on playing it? Because all the things you've added, like the storyline, all the things moving up, they all, if you go, well, I want to tell the story over a course of stories 
or I want to tell the story, of course I get sessions, or I want to tell the story right now and get it done. It's the storyline that I feel really builds it up because that way, by saying how many sessions, you can put into a sandbox. So you can say, well, running a campaign in the sandbox world, you can do anything. You can go anywhere, you can do what you want. Clearly I want more than one session. I want to, uh, I want to say with this plot line where you're going up to stop this guy and it will take us about maybe like 12 sessions, 15 sessions. I don't really know, but it'll take a while to do it. That's a campaign to me. Whereas a one shot is a, I'm planning on telling a singular story with whatever the hell you want with it and I want to get it done. And if it takes more than two or three sessions, we'll work on it afterwards. Then maybe we'll become a campaign going, but I only have a single story I want to tell and I want to get that story told. Then it's a campaign. So then it's okay. it. Then it's it. Then it's just one shot. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so, Dennis, what, what do you think is? Um, what's your definition of a campaign? Grant us your wisdom, Dennis. We're ready, Dennis. Give it to us hard. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if necessarily a slower burn, but at least in that neighborhood, um, where it's uh, like an extended story that takes several sessions to tell. Um, and that kind of wraps up the campaign for me and with I guess room for filler episodes um, because I think that's that's a thing you can do in a campaign whereas a one shot is it's much more focused and you have that one thing and you can do that one thing and then it's over um, but it, with a game system uh, I don't think it's. I mean, I think playstyle is more important. Like technically, we 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 play limitations of the Flame Princess, but we are l l maybe a more loosey goosey group who tends to allow um, GM fiat just to yeah, this happens and. Um, so I think playstyle is more important because I'm gonna be stuck to the rules. Then it's very important you pick the right rules. Are you less married to the rules? Then yeah, we can we can adapt and we can do stuff uh, with basically anything, I guess. Some systems are clearly better suited for like Cold Cthulhu would be better suited for playing Cold Cthulhu than say D&D uh, &D, Fifth Edition. D&D 5th edition is better suited for heroic fantasy than Call of Cthulhu. Do you think any of the, any system particularly lends itself to like campaigns over one shots? I, I agree. Yeah, obviously, if you want if you want sort of like cosmic horror, then D&D is probably not the first system you'd be reaching for. And likewise, if you wanted heroic fantasy, you're probably not going to be in that Call of Cthulhu vibe, which. I'm not saying you can't do that. You can certainly adapt to them to do that. However, do you guys think there's any systems which particularly lend themselves very well to a campaign game as opposed to a one-shot? I, I, I hate to say it, but I feel that the question should be more like what systems don't lend themselves to a campaign one-shot. A lot of systems out there, a lot of them, indie or otherwise all have like ideas of running them for longer than just one or two or three or four even 10 sessions they all build up on that whereas you'll, fi you'll it's finding games that don't build up that people like to run like say lasers and feelings technically lasers and feelings for example isn't really what isn't really a multiple session game it seems more like a one-shot game 
Whereas you can have games that have been built for one shot, like Lady Blackbird, which you can run for like a week. I mean, I've run like a six session game of Lady Blackbird before because the story wasn't told enough. And I was like, well, we gotta keep going, guys. It's one of those things. Every game system can, especially modern game systems, can lend themselves to more than a one shot. They can all go for it. You just have to figure out what you want from it, whether the rules are what work for you or the system is what makes you feel better, or you don't really care about either one, you just want a reason to roll the dice, I don't know. Okay, so so let me put it this way. If you, in a, like a hypothetical situation, if you guys were like sitting down tomorrow and you're like, right, I want to start up running a campaign game, what would be the first system, just like, that you would automatically reach for? Ignoring considerations of like, the group that you'd be running for, etc. If they were like, your group are like, yeah, run whatever system you want, it's fine. What system would you reach for automatically? Uh, are you asking me this right now? Because that changes yeah, I, per day. I, I, I'm asking all of you right now. Yeah, right here, yeah. right now. Today, Lloyd. Not tomorrow. Okay, well, for me, it will probably be that. Because I just got it this weekend. Legend of Five Rings. Straight up. It just came out. I'm like, I'm reading. I'm like, this sounds great. I want to run a campaign. Let's go. Boom, but, done. I, I was going to say, is it just a small aside, is it any good? Because I've not actually got a copy yet. Oh, how much you like? I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dennis, if you were going to like run a campaign game tomorrow, what game system would you reach to first, Gerbs? Well, was Matthew a player? Then Gerbs, yes. Connie, you, Dennis. I think you muted. If Matthew was a player, then Gerbs, yes. I want to talk to him <laughs> with Gerbs. Uh, to me, it's kind of more like, what is the cost of uh, learning this system? I mean, does it have a very steep learning curve, and is that steep learning curve worth it? And if you if you if you're talking curves, there is a built-in learning curve that's very steep. So it has to be a long game before I feel that investment is is worth it. That's an that's an interesting question though, because I I do think that if you're going to be running a one shot then the emphasis tends to be, as we've said, like your one story. You want people to be able to get into it and sort of get the teeth into it as quickly as possible. So I do think that sort of, in my opinion, more straightforward systems that really have a shorter learning curve tend to work better for one-shots. Not always. I mean, if you've got like a, a complex rule system, you know that all your players know it and you can all jump straight into it, happy days. Whereas I think, certainly from my experience, people tend to be more willing to go for a system that they're maybe not as familiar with or that has a bit more of a learning curve if they know they're going to be playing like enough games to gain an appreciation of that system. I, I mean, I personally like, I guess, what could, could we call them more flat system as GURPS where, yeah, you are this good to begin with and even with... Many, 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 many sessions worth of XP. You're not that significant more better. So it's it's more flatlined that way. So it tends to run very well for a long game because it doesn't spike as my it has been my experience with, for example, D&D, where you suddenly get a spike and then it changes everything. Um, Rollmaster is also good for long term. Okay, how about yourself then, Matthew? What game system would you reach for if you're running a new campaign? Like right now? Yeah, right, says, right here, right it now. It does change from week to week. Not day to day, I'm not quite as... 
Philippi is Lloyd. Um, it's probably it would probably be either. I'm picking two answers here. I feel like I'm, I'm flipping out. It'd probably be either Simbarum or Delta Green because they're the ones I'm really excited to run at the moment, and I've been t taking the time to get to know the systems, um, put together ideas for campaigns, or, you know, already before I'm even actually running one. Because that's where I'm excited to run. I mean, do, uh, do, but do you think those systems particularly lend themselves well to a campaign? Is that is that part of your consideration, or is it just like, oh yeah, like, yeah, I oh, want yeah. to run I these games? So. I would say so. You know, Delta Green's are great, especially if you're playing it say over decades, um, so that you know there is you know <laughs> most characters don't age that much. You might have noticed in campaigns, there's, there's rarely time jumps. When that game lends itself really well to being like a good five six year jump pick up the pieces of what happened uh, before in the horrible situations you found yourself in. Simbarum, again, it's it's a game that I think you've got to peel back the layers. It takes time. And the, there's a campaign that's already you know been produced that sounds very interesting. But I would say, at one of your points earlier, like one of the things that's not brought up, for long-form campaigns, you also have to consider the fact, will, the, will these players be playing the same character throughout the whole thing? Or will they change over time? Will people come and go in terms of like the characters dying? They they voluntarily you know retire them, bench them. You know if that was the case, then I'd probably pick something up like the Pendragon campaign, because that is perfectly designed for a very long and kind of slow build campaign with historical relevance, fictional of course, but still, and that that goes over a hundred years of time, and that's like a hundred sessions at the least. Okay, that, that's cool. So if anyone else has anything to say on that, we'll move on to the the next point. So let's say we've, we've sat down, we've decided we're going to run a campaign game. Now, we, we come next to like the idea of once you've decided you want to run a campaign game, of recruiting players for your game. Now, I hear this asked an awful lot in various sort of online forums, Facebook groups, etc., where people are sort of struggling to find players or they're looking for players to recruit them for a campaign game. So in your in your sort of minds guys, where do you think what do you think is the best way of recruiting for players whether that's online, offline, whatever? It depends on the, once again the campaign you want to run. If you're running online, if you're going to run it like Google Hangout style, rest in peace Google Plus. If you're going to run it online, then you want to recruit from places that you tend to circumvent. So if you have, to, if you want to use your Facebook groups that you probably have, you can try through there. If you want to use Google+, Plus, there are quite a few places on Google+. Plus. Well, there were until Google+, Plus had to freaking disappear. That you can go to. If Sorry, you, man. We've, we've got till August, man. We've got till August. <laughs> go to August. Oh, God, why? You've, you've, even if you're, if you're really desperate, you can try Roll20. If you want Scum of the Earth, you can try Reddit. Like, it's up to you what you want to go online. If it's offline... That's a lot harder. It depends on where you are, where your location is, where you're willing to play, all of those factors. But they all have to come into whether you can run a campaign or not, if you're willing to go the extra mile. If you're going to run at home, then they got, you've got to be ready to welcome strange people into your house. If you're going to run a pub, they've got to be okay with going to the pub. If you want to run in a game store, you got to make sure you tell the game store. I mean, it's so there's so many factors that you have to come into consideration before you can decide where you're going to recruit from so yeah i mean i think that's a very good point i mean i certainly know for myself one of the the big impetus is one of the big pushes for me to run more games online was because well i live in like a small town and certainly when i was sort of 
when I was running more sort of live games, it was very difficult to find people to run games for because I was only like a small pool of RPGs. So unless you're willing to like travel, and there's a few games that other people are running that I travelled a fair distance for, but if that's not an option for you, it becomes a lot more difficult to organise people in person. So I think one of the positive sides of running online is you potentially got access to a much larger pool of players, but that also, on the sort of flip side, that also means you've got to take you've got to take more time to like consider like which players are going to fit into your game, who you're going to be able to get on with, um, so. Uh, time zones, different people's schedules, stuff like that. And I'm sure we all know from trying to organise games online, with everyone being busy and having work and various things going on, it can be a nightmare trying to get people's schedules to like sync up enough to commit regularly to a campaign. I mean, for a one-shot, if you're saying to people, like, all right, I just need you to turn up once on like a Friday or whatever, it's a lot easier to get people to commit to just turning up to like one or two sessions than it is to say, like, oh, potentially we're running a game for like, 20 sessions it's going to be like once a week or whatever are people going to be and that's my next point is how committed do you want or require your players to be uh, very <laughs> it, it's it, I think it's more in theory it's easier to find players online I would think because you have access to an international pool of players um, or even people in your entire country as opposed to only your city and it needs to be within a certain driving distance and all that of course you ran into as you mentioned other issues with online but i think that's the best place to look well it- i mean i think as well on the sort of like reverse of that part of the issue with sort of online games is because there are more games out there people can afford to maybe be a bit more selective about what games they're playing i certainly know when i was running games sort of like for the small group in my hometown that like if someone was running a game and I'm like oh maybe it's not my like favourite game or maybe I'm not too keen on the premise I'd be more willing to go like oh do you know what I'll just give it a go because that's what you've got whereas if you've got people online who are like oh well I've got loads of games to select from if someone runs a game I'm maybe not that keen on they may be less willing to certainly some people may be less willing to give it a go and try it out because they're like oh no I'll just wait till a game that like suits me better i mean i don't know whether that's matched your experiences guys i mean i i, I tend to measure the group with uh, the people i'm playing with rather than what we are playing um that's more important to me i mean not that i don't want to play specific games but let's say i could play my favorite system ever with uh, with scumbags from reddit I would prefer to play a system I don't like, like Limitation of the Flame Princess with friends. Oh, you cut me deep, Dennis. <laughs> you cut me deep. I, I always have a lot of sympathy for people trying to find their first sort of game because I think it's a lot easier to get a game once you know people who play. Yeah. <laughs> so getting the first your first in, in a sense, it's finding those people. It can be so tricky in person if you're not online a lot. And if anyone's listening, my advice would be to try like a friendly neighborhood gaming store and just see if there's any notices put up. You know, there might be a games night, a board game night. You might, you might come to like a, say, imagine the gathering night. That might be the wrong kind of game that you're looking for, but you usually meet the like minded people there and they can point you in the right direction. Yeah, and don't let that experience dissuade you from trying again. Yeah. <laughs> so it took me a good, a good year or so to find a group when I first started out. It, and. 
you know, like then I started playing online and I just a whole world opened. Yeah, you're also it's very much based on your personality. Like, if you're going to try and recruit people for a game, you're going to have to put yourself out there. And that's kind of shitty yeah. because... Sorry for swearing. Because, well, if, if, even, if, even if you are, like, the most gregarious person alive, how you oh, come across... Oh, who do we know like that, Lloyd? How you come across for your recruitment might not be the way you think it is. If you are if you if you're out there trying to be like, hey, I want someone on my game, and people are like, actually, we don't know you, we've just met you, we're not quite sure, then you're gonna have a bit of a problem. But like I said, it's one of those trial and error things. Getting players is something that it's very dependent on who you are and how you do it. Sometimes you just have to get your friends and bully them into playing the game with you, whether they like it or not. Yeah, I mean, I do I do think for myself, um, one of the one of the things that helped me online was the fact I'd done the whole sort of like YouTube thing and then like interacting with people in communities beforehand so people sort of got to know you and what you're interested in and sort of what sort of games you like and what sort of games you've run in the past so when you then popped up and you're like oh hey guys i'm going to run this game it's going to be this system and i'm planning on running it like once a month or whatever well probably not once a month because that's, right. that's a bit too long <clears> between <throat> for me and, but. and getting people free when you are is is an ongoing struggle but if if you're willing to run the game and you've got a venue you're already halfway there <laughs> if you've got a venue and you can provide food, there should not be a problem. I mean, like, if you've got a place for them to sit down or sleep even, and you can bring in food, they are done. Like, that's the number one sort of thing for any campaign. Okay, okay. I have food, I have a couch, and I have a place you can even sit, Lloyd, so... But you are terrifying, Dennis. Yeah, but Dennis, Dennis, if I came over there, I'd never leave. I'd never leave you. Dennis. Second, that I'd be in the walls. I'd be, I'd, I'll live forever. And not because I'm in the walls. That's kind of <laughs> But what, what I was going to say, and it's likely better to give more details on this, but, you know, conventions are more local than you think. You know, and they're a great place to meet people. Sorry. Because they, they've come. i got to correct you. Conventions are more local than you think if you live in the UK. America! Mm. Well, they're still there. They're just, yeah. you know, <laughs> spread out a bit. Every, everything's more local in the UK because there's less yeah. space. Everything's <laughs> spread out more in the, in the US. I, I in think the, UK, the, the thing with have a convention you can't go to. It's gonna be one at least. The thing with finding finding people to play with and all that is kind of like any other social interaction. I think it's it's more or less the same thing. You have to go out and try to find places. As Matt said, a game store might be. If you re- really don't have any other options, that's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, conventions I mean, online we could do a, we could do a whole podcast on like how to recruit players because like that there's like a million ways oh yeah we may we may do a podcast on that specifically in the future but i, I do think lloyd's right in that if you're going to try and recruit players the main thing is you have to like put yourself out there yeah and there, there may be times you put yourself out there you run the risk of like things not working out maybe like meeting people you don't get on with or running into all sorts of problems but if you don't put yourself out there and run that risk you're never going to get people to sort of know you you're never going to get the experience that will help you become a better gm and probably a better player in the future when it comes to like role playing but that's why i said it's like any other social interaction right i mean you unfortunately that's the only way to do it let's go out and meet people and hopefully you get lucky and meet the right people right away but if not you have to stick out stick it out stick to it what's it called 
Yeah, I mean, without wanting to like harken back to like the sort of hoary like old days when everything was golden, you know, I do think one of the benefits of having sort of run a lot of games in person before sort of stepping into like the online arena is that because you have to pretty much like go with who you've got available to run games, you you have to learn, you have to like make these mistakes and sort of like move yourself forward. It's not a case of like, oh, well, I'll just like sack off these people because like they're not the ideal players. Because if you're just running games in person, the group of players you've got access to is what you've got. And you have to learn like how to deal with that and run the best game you can with what you've got. But to point out as well, John, there are online conventions too. So even if you are geographically isolated, there are other options. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm running a game for like Con Plus One, which is on in November, and I've enjoyed that when it when it was previously known as Brigade Con. I'm sure I'll enjoy it this year. But again, if you you're going to run a game at a convention, again you have to put yourself out there. You have to say like, right, I'm running this game, and whoever turns up for that game is whoever turns up. Whether you, even if you're running the game, and you think, oh, I probably wouldn't want to run a regular game for this person. That's who you've got to run that game for. You have to run the best game you can with the players and the game you've got available. Well, uh, stuff like uh, Con Plus One is <clears throat> also a good way. I mean, if, you, if you're if new, you can sign up to one of the, the games. It's free. You get to meet mm -hmm. people. Yeah, and I've, I've never met a GM that's upset that you're a new player. So never be afraid that you don't know the rules or how it works. Like, everyone has their first game and people just understand it's never. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, certainly when I run one shots, but again, when I run campaigns, I, I've always been at pains to say to the players at the start, like, look, if there's anything you don't understand, just say, because I'd rather slow the game down temporarily, explain stuff, and have you think, oh yeah, I get that now, I can get involved, than have someone like sit back and be worried about getting involved because they're going to do something wrong. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so. We've touched on like how committed we want players to be, and I do think obviously the more regularly you run a game, the more you want people to be committed, the more potentially difficult it can be with like schedules and stuff like that. The thing with that is though, it's everything is 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 tiered up together, right? So if you have a group of four players and one GM, it's very important that you figure out a regular schedule for that. So you can plan around that, because I mean we've all been where we need to. Uh, oh, this player can't make it. Okay, then the GM has to come up with some sort of explanation, or we just ignore it, or something else happens. But I think that's that's one of my big issues. That's commitment. That's that's where I would put down my uh, my tent poles to uh, to make a stand. <laughs> that's by commitment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, personally, I, we all appreciate that if you're in a long-running campaign, there's going to be times when, like, for whatever reason, work, and personal life, etc., someone's not going to be able to make a session. That's absolutely grand. Um, but I think, like, obviously, we'll all uh, all occasionally have like a last-minute emergency where you like you think you're going to be able to make a session, then something happens last minute and you can't make it. That that happens from time to time. It can't be avoided. But I would say one of the things I tend to do when I'm a player is if I if I have a slightest suspicion that I'm maybe not going to be able to make a session, I let the GM know 
as soon as I know. So even if I'm like, I'll probably be all right for the game, but there's a possibility, I'll let the GM know that as soon as I can. So then at least I'll have a bit of time to go, all right, John might not be at that session. I can sort of start thinking about that. Whereas it's a lot more difficult if you're like geared up, you're ready for the session, you've got your prep done, etc., or whatever. And then like sort of five minutes before you start, you get like a message of someone like, I can't make it because like my dog's in or whatever. But that that kind of thing also affects what kind of game you can run. Because if you if you if you know your your group is committed, you can start using uh, like personal stuff from the characters and all that, and plan with that, and uh, and be uh, be somewhat comfortable comfortable with uh, knowing that they will turn up when it's uh, let's call it their character's turn to be in the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very true, because I mean, if you've got like a subplot running for a particular character in like, a long-running campaign, let's say they, they've had a particular villain that's been like vexing them throughout the campaign, and you've like got a whole sort of session planned around the fact that like, oh, they're going to go and deal with this villain, and they're going to finally get, it, get his comeuppance, and then like the player whose character that revolves around suddenly is like, oh, I can't make it. You've got, you've got two choices, for my mind. You can either go... All right. Well, we're just going to come up with a justification. We're going to push ahead with that storyline anyway, or you run with something else. Now, if, if I've got like a few days advance notice, I can easily like come up with something else. We can like flip it. Whereas if I've been told like sort of five minutes before the game starts, I can still run something else, but it'll be more sort of off the top of my head. It'll be it'll be more improv based, which I don't mind doing, but some gems may not be as comfortable with. Okay, so I think another thing we have to consider, which we've touched on a bit there, is how regularly you run your campaign. And we've talked a bit about how that affects how committed people can be to it. So for you guys, in terms of a campaign game, what would be your like sweet spot? If you were in a ca the ideal campaign, how often would you want it or reasonably expect it to be running? Honestly, I usually like I I mean like it's a campaign that I'm like constantly coming to once a week is usually quite good. That's like my that that's that's your basic startup. Once a week, every week till the campaign ends. But at the same time, this is weird because I'm terrible and I think TV spoke me. I also like seasons. So I like one week every week for like five or six or seven weeks, and then we take a break for a while. And we come back at season two and do the next part. It actually is a very easy and fun formula to do because you get that bit done, you get that story arc told, then you take a short break, then you come back, you do love letters, you like tell players, hey, look, okay, so we've gone for a little time, we can have some time pass, so any of your time-related things can go past now, and then we can start the next one after a while. And it's very comfortable. It's it's it's, it's sort of a really nice one. I just like I just I just enjoy it. It's funny that even though me and Lloyd disagree on quite a lot of games that we like, our campaign construction is pretty similar. Because what I do is I, I create a situation, and that's the season, that's, a, that's the storyline for the season, and each episode progresses that event and how the players either interact with it or not, depending on their preference. And at the end, we take a break, and I see where we're at, and then the story continues to the next season. The stakes have been raised, things have changed, NPCs have developed, and such so like. Yeah, I mean and that's pretty much exactly how I do it. Yeah, I mean I, I'd agree with that. I mean I, I'm a big fan of the sort of season model myself, and that's partly because of what I was saying earlier, where I tend to like campaigns that have like a finite sort of arc. 
So if you do that with the season, you can say, right, we're doing our season one. This revolves around like this like particular antagonist. You do that finite arc. And then like your second season is almost like another small mini campaign within the overall game. So you can sort of you can have these finite arcs, but you can have a number of them all sort of backed up. But like you say is that season two, season three, whatever. And it seems to be sort of like it seems to encapsulate the best of both worlds, as far as I'm concerned, by using that seasonal model. I mean, I don't know about you, Dennis. What do you think in terms of like the sort of regularity of a game and the sort of seasonal model we're talking about? I haven't tried the Lloyd season model. I think it sounds like a good idea. Um, I prefer games to run on a regular schedule. I prefer weekly. Um, Bi-weekly is cool. Monthly is too long a wait or pause for me. I start to, I guess, lose some of the interest I have. Or I forget stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I know we've talked a bit about this between ourselves, Dennis. I, I certainly agree that I... I personally struggle with monthly games. Now, I think monthly games can work, and, I, and I've played in them before, and they do—they have worked. But they only, they only really work for me if, when you get these sessions once a month, the sessions are longer than you would typically get. Like if we're running bi-weekly or weekly, and like you get three or four hours a session, happy days. And I, you I, tend I, to lose the plot as well because people only some people take detailed notes, and after a month, no one remembers what's going on. That, that said, I mean. If you're running a game monthly and you're like, all right, but each session we run is going to be like six hours or whatever, so we can get a lot done in those monthly sessions, that is absolutely grand. But if you're saying to me, like, oh, we're going to run a game once a month and it's only going to be like the three hours, I'm like, well, depending on what system you run, that could be just like you're doing like one combat every month. And that 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 just doesn't really do it for me. And like you say, there is the problem of the long gaps between and everyone's got shit going on in their lives so i struggle i mean that's why i make so many notes because if there's a long period of time between them i struggle to remember like the finer details of where we were what was going on with the plot etc i guess that's another thing you need to think about when it comes to making your campaign is once you get you once you got everyone together you can figure out what the structure is how plot intensive is it do you have to have a million? Are you gonna be like, all right? It's gonna be like two billion NPCs, and they're all gonna have funky names and all different personalities, and you gotta keep track of every single one because the one of them is gonna screw you over if you don't remember his freaking eyeball color or something. Like, you gotta <laughs> not all of us, you, Lloyd. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't run that game because, like, I'm, I'm terrible. I just kill you. But like, more importantly, if you've got to put that into your idea, because if you're like that, you're gonna have to let like, players know ahead of time. So they know, like, okay, we need to keep track of notes. Because you can run a campaign where it's just, like, gallivanting across the countryside, rescuing damsels or damsies in distress, and knocking yourself out doing random things. You can run that campaign too, and then players will be like, yeah, we just turn up once a week, kill some bad guys, go home, feel good. That's also fine. And that may work better for your one, your bi-monthly. I know a game that's running bi-monthly in Wales... And they play per month because the only time they can get together. But they play for the whole day, and nice. their plot yeah. like like the GM has written like a long plot thing over the top. But it also factors in the fact is like the players are not going to remember any of this. I have to remember that they're not going to remember any of this, so I'm not going to make it ridiculous. And he's prepared for it. So, like you're right, you do need to you do you would have to keep an eye on what crops you are, but you can always style your campaign to compensate for that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, 
any sort of discrepancies with the regularity of running it as long as you're getting like a good session when you get a session and you take into account with you your planning and your campaign prep the regularity of your game i think you can work your way around that i think the main problem for me comes if you try and run like a monthly game in the same way you would run like a weekly game it, it won't work for my money because they're very different animals i think that's fair I'll take that. To answer your original question, though, John, I never actually answered. For me personally, um, I think a bi-weekly schedule is, is where I found a sweet spot because that allows people um, to commit so every two weeks, usually with kids, spouses, you know, work and everything. Usually it's, you can get them to commit ahead of time and it allows you as a GM to, like, run other games, play other games if need be. You know, so it's, it's. I think that's that's the the best format I found so far. Yeah, I mean, another thing to factor in when it comes to the regularity of your game is how much prep time you need as a GM, and that's different for all GMs, and it can be affected by what game Always you're prepping, running. John, prepping right now. That's it. Prepping all day long, maps upon maps. Well, I mean, prep is prep is relative to the campaign you're running. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, all joking aside. It can be partly influenced by the system. It's also influenced by the type of campaign you're running. Like, say, if you're running a sandbox campaign and you're like, they're just romping around the countryside, exploring dungeons, kicking over doors, doing doing what they want to do. There's a very different style of prep, not necessarily lesser, but there's a different style of prep involved in running that game than there would be if you're running a sort of high detailed like political campaign. And also, if you're running a system that's like designed around the idea of a a low prep game so something like dungeon world or like a more story-based game you could potentially you would have to prep differently than if you're running like a more traditional game but i think it's just something these, the gm has to keep in mind but all of these comments can, can be changed when you get your players and you've yeah. got a table and you're ready because like you tailor the, you always tailor your game to what's happening on the table and if your players are just not caring about the seventh son of Kimaskuro that you have insert DMPC'd inserted into the game. Kill him off and move on. Do something different. Work it out. It's your campaign. I, I, okay, I so think th- every GM, well, if they survive their ordeal, they will find a, a way to prep that suits them and works for them. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you continuously sort of have to adapt the way you prep. I mean, I certainly know that like nowadays the the way I prep now is very different to the way I prepped when I first started role playing, and that's down to like lessons I've learned during gaming, things I've tried that didn't work, um, how my amount of time for prep has changed because obviously life happens, and all of these things can affect like how much prep you do and the style of prep that you actually do for a game. Okay, so does anyone else have anything to say on the issue of like long periods of inactivity between games or the regularity of games? I I always just as a, as a side note, I always offer a recap whenever I start a session, just in case anyone else has forgot, just to give them a chance to remember and jog their memory. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you can do that can help with that is if you get one of the players to like recap the previous session now this may not be possible if you're running a game with a massive long period of time between it unless you've got someone who makes like mad detailed notes on it but 
if you're running a game where like the players will remember at least the broad strokes of the previous session getting yeah. like the players between them to like give a recap can be handy because as they're sort of thinking about it and they're sort of giving the recap it reminds them and it reminds you of what actually happened and more importantly what they thought was important that that's uh, exactly. that's how i usually did it i had one of the players uh, do the recap and uh, depending on the system they would get a, a little token for it what i found is as a weird uh, sort of byproduct so every time i run a session i have a give a title and usually i announce it at the beginning of the session um, do, do, that's sort of getting into the sort of like episodic you know season format i've been using right so and because the players write down that like that title and any notes that they write it during that time when let's say like five or six sessions down the road they remember something in that session they remember from the title it's like, oh yeah that happened in blah 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 and it sort of helps them like memorize it which i thought was interesting yeah, i mean the, the way i like to do it personally is I liked. I give like a broad sort of description of what happened in the previous session. Then, as I'm doing that, the players will be like chipping in with like bits and pieces they've remembered, which, as I say, is quite handy because there might be some like minor detail. I thought it was just some like it's just some like throwaway comment. But like, if two or three of the players mention it, I'd be like, obviously, it meant something to the players. So then you can consider like, oh, do, do I want to make a bit more of that? Do I want to reference back to that? And it all helps you work out what is important to your group of players in terms of what they want to see in the game. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about advertising for players and building interest in your game. Because as we've said early on, if you can't get people interested in your game, people aren't going to turn up and play your game. So what you need is a hype beast. That's it, exactly. Uh, and I... And I've I've heard the phrase. Sorry, go ahead, Lloyd. Sorry, carry on, please. Someone said a hype piece. I'm like, ah, mm, carry on. Well, all I was going to say is I've heard the phrase like elevator pitch used a lot, and what that tends to refer to is just like a a little capsule description. Like if you're going to post in like an online forum or you're putting a post up in your local store, it's like what you'd put on that post, that little like hook to get people to go, oh yeah, that that sounds really interesting. I I, I want to give that game a go. So. Do you guys find elevator pitches useful? If so, how do you go about making a pitch that's going to like appeal to the people you want? You should you should always view it from the angle. I think what is this campaign or game uh, good for? Focus on the positives. Don't be like, oh, this campaign's about this and it's not really suitable for blah blah blah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if you want a gritty. Um, hard-boiled campaign. This isn't for you. You want to you want to sort of present it in a way. If you're interested in this, this is what you want. This is what you want. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I think sort of if you focus exclusively on like the negatives in your elevator pitch, it doesn't really sound like you're trying to like big up your own game and make the best of it. It just sounds like you're trying to like put down all the other games that aren't your game, which for my mind isn't what you want to do as you were saying matthew you want to be playing up what's good about your game what's going to get people interested in it what's going to make them want to play not trying to be saying oh well you're not playing these other games because they're like trash you want to play in this game so a lot of things recently since the internet's been up there is that when people do elevator pitches they write like a short like paragraph or two of their like of like the world itself to so be like 
It'll be like, the dark elf queen has fallen and you are standing upon her charred corpse, looking and gazing upon her land that will soon be yours. Hello, is that game? I mean, so, like, stuff like that. People do that. I mean, like, I mean, mean, people, ca- carry on. I'm writing this down. Come on. <sighs> I mean, people like that. I mean, personally, it's not really for me. I'm like, I, I miss, I skip all of that. And I go, what system is this? So this is my problem, right? That stuff is great. But after you finish writing that, at the bottom, I want, what system is this? How many players? Maybe even how long you're planning on running it for? And what are the main, like, key points? Some of um, what's it called? Uh, the Gauntlet has this thing called Cats, which is, I have to always remember what it means, because it's, um, oh, I can't remember what it goes. It's, uh, it's Concept. Oh, it never comes to me. I will look that up while I'm talking to you. It's fine. No one will see the difference. You have to have an idea of what you want to put down. You have to put down what the game means and what everything's going to be about. So, like, once you've written your elevator pitch bit at the top, you have a nice little bottom, at the part, bottom pit at the part that says what the system is, what topics you're probably going to be going Maybe even like topics you're probably not gonna be dealing with. Is that kind of, it's like it's like is this oh, we're playing Iron talks Kingdoms. About mature content and stuff. It like gives you a notice. Yeah, that's also. I mean, that, I mean, I'm a big fan of the mature content notice because I'm like, if I'm like, oh man, I want to play a game of Mask, and you're like, this game is for 18 plus. We're exploring just how much people die and your parents are lost. And then I'm like, nope, we out. Like straight up, just let me know that stuff before I start things up. It's uh, it's. Aspects like that, that those, those that little like bottom bit. Put your wonderful, long written, deep, meaningful line bullshit at the top, and maybe I'll read it if I'm interested. At the bottom, give me the deets. Also, when you're running it, if you have to, or if it changes, or and also like who the hell you are, that also helps. Those are the things I want to see in elevator pitch. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point because I think you have to balance out the sort of like the flowery sort of prose with. The important details about the game. I mean, a lot of things where people are asking for like GM advice online, a lot of the problems seem to spring from a conflict between what the GM thought the game was going to be like and what the players were expecting from the game. And when they don't sort of mesh up, that can cause a lot of problems. And it's far easier to sort of get the out in the open what you're expecting the game to be and what style of content it's going to have at the start. Than like have like about five or six sessions in someone being like oh well i wasn't really expecting it to be like a game that dealt with like how like graphically we're like killing people or people getting tortured or or whatever they're just like some obvious examples whereas if you say at the start right this is a game that's going to focus on like the horrible costs of war and the the brutality of it then as you say lloyd people who aren't interested in that or don't like that they can make an informed decision about whether to play your game or not and let's face it the the in-character prose is all very nice but if you put too much of it in no one's got time to read like a small novella before they decide that they're going to play your game that you want like a little snippet to give them a flavor and then like you say put the details down get it all down there in black and white then to, to put it in a mercenary fashion then if someone like halfway through this like horror of war game goes i wasn't expecting there to be sort of so much like blood and guts and you'd be like the, the game's called like the horror of war it was all that at the start <laughs> the way i i, wasn't ex- I did I it in the past horrible things in here. because i i, I don't want to run a campaign if i don't have something that interests me in it so yeah mm-hmm. i call it my gimmick but it can be anything that i am interested in so i i like if you take uh I don't know, a can of soda where you have the flavored, nice 
in front with the the brand and all that that's my concept pitch and then when you turn around you have the nutritional factors that's uh, the system the level the characterization all that boring shit <laughs> no i i mean i entirely agree i mean and that moves on talking about the sort of the can of soda sort of like allegory that moves on to my next point which is when you've decided on your elevator pitch how do you then go about sort of publicizing that or advertising it if you want to use that to like attract the players to it and we've touched on that i bet you know if you if you're in facebook groups you can advertise there there's various online communities you can put posters in like your local game store etc but when you're creating this material what do you guys think you like need to have in like your promo material if you want to call it that to like really like draw people into your game i'll let you go first that is okay well as i said i'll have the the concept whatever this is supposed to be focusing on um that will be the first thing and um then usually I will do a document with uh, all the rule initiated shit and then I will end up with some sort of small gadgets here and I'll you can read whatever you want in it. How about yourself Matthew have you got any um, thoughts on what you should have in your promo material? So this is like a one sheet type thing. Well, well it, it could be whatever you want. Place. I mean, I know the sort of the, the setting like gazetteer is like a an age old yeah. like way of doing it with like a small book level. Like these are the facts you would know having come from this setting. Yeah. I don't think I'd do a gazetteer unless I had my players confirmed and it was already like conf- you know it was it was actually about to get down to the nitty gritty of getting the game sessions going. I think I'd, I'd make a, a small promo like page or maybe a video just saying, okay, this is what the game is, the system. This is what's cool about it. This is the kind of things we're going to explore. This is what's fun about it. Um, kind of players, the kind of player count I'm looking for and a rough idea of play time. Because like, obviously if, if I'm advertising online, then the time you're actually going to play it does matter a lot. I will say Friends. once I was uh, really excited so I did a, a promo video that I did. Oh, right, okay. Um, unfortunately, I lost it in time. I have no idea where it went. But uh, I, I, I kind of like that. But that was very labor-intensive because I had absolutely zero skill and still have zero skill in editing. But I kind of like it as, a, as an idea, like a pitch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as well, I know we've sort of touched on this already, but it's very important when you're like you're doing your pitch and your promo material is it should all reflect the sort of the themes and like the content of your game. As we were saying, you should be upfront and like transparent about the type of game you're going to run because you don't want like, any surprises in terms of the type of game to like crop up and cause potential issues in the group as the game's going on. Whereas if it's all out there, everyone knows what sort of game they're going to be playing. It's all good. Can I say, just as a quick tangent, I really enjoyed the work you did, John, on the posters we did for, you know, for that convention you went to in, uh, in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I like that you took the descriptions we all gave and then you fused the artwork from the different games to those like basically paragraphs of what the game was about and created something that looked like it was you know, a really good representation of what the game was about and the kind of visual like tone 
you put on there that was really good. Is, is it going to sound really bad that I don't know specifically what games Matthew's referring to? <laughs> we went to the, the convention in Manchester. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, man, I've run a lot of games since then. You have, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling your pain. So, um, just on the subject of elevator pitches, I'm not going to lie to you, I don't tend to write a gazetteer because that takes too much effort. I will probably, though, because of the type of games I run, link you to a few videos either music video or like a short episode video and be like, all right, guys, it's going to be like this, but way better, like way better. It's going to be like this is what I tend to do. Or if it's like, um, if I'm like, hey, look, if we're going to run this kind of game, these are the movies that I kind of take my inspiration from. So think about these movies, or if you've seen these movies, or even just read about these movies, you have an idea what to do. I'm running a um, Tales of the Water Margin game for my friends, which is like a... Um, based on the books but it's like it's all like all like adventure where they have to like perform one good deed so i'm linking them all the stuff that have to do with that or even if you're running prince valiant just link them the prince valiant cartoon like that, that that's amazing. amazing i know that's that's me done like bam yeah so it finished so it no more work for me yeah i mean i think that's a good point i mean secondary source material like videos music etc can be like really useful i mean i know in um johannes's like v20 sabat game that myself dennis and matthew played in the like wrapped up recently when we got into like the final sort of confrontation and that all the parties have like been invited to this big like slug match Johannes was like all right here's something to like give you a flavor of the next session and he linked to like the um the sort of blade sort of like combat music and he was like he was like oh listen to this and like immediately it's like you know like the club scene in blade and like as soon as he linked to that we were all like right we understand. We know what this de- this session is going to be like, and and straight away, without him having to do like a massive like gazetteer, without him having to do pages and pages of information, just like a quick link to that video. And because he knew that we all had a common frame of reference, we were all going into it sort of expecting pretty much the same sort of thing. So I think those secondary source materials can be like really, really valuable, either on their own or reinforcing something else. I think that's fair. Okay. So I think it's important as well when you're running a campaign, even if you have your initial idea, and like like we said, I think you should have your idea and sort of put it out there so it's all there in black and white for the players to look at. I think as well you should also, as a GM, try and be flexible with that idea. So you might say, like, oh, I'm running, just use this like ridiculous like horror of war-like game that I mentioned. You might say, yeah, running a game that deals with with the horror of war. But if, like, someone comes in saying, all right, I understand that, and here's my here's my character's background. I'd also kind of like to explore this a little bit and something else. As long as it doesn't like absolutely contradict the core tenets of your game, I think you should try and be flexible and try and incorporate some of those ideas and get the players involved in it. Because at the end of the day, I think the more the players are involved in it, the more sort of the more invested they'll be in the game, the, the more they'll want to actually play in it. If this, because let's face it, it's all really cool when you have like a bit of background. And the GM suddenly like brings that bit of background of yours out in a session where you're like, oh yeah, the, I, I was involved in like helping to create that. It's a really cool feeling as a player. So I think as a GM, you, although you might have your core tenant, you have to still have a little bit of flexibility. I think that's perfectly fair. I'm a big believer that you should always have a few things that you don't want to change because that's what you want in the game. Which for me, usually is like PG-13. That's what I want the game. Full up. PG-13. Everything else can come afterwards. Bit of violence, bit of death. Let's not go too graphic. Everything else, I can change it around. I can move things about. I can switch you. Always adapt your game and your campaign because 
no offense, you're stuck with these people for like 20 sessions. You're gonna have to get used to them. Adapt yeah. your game to the, what to like to their play to play styles to where you want. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good point as well because I mean, obviously, I've played in a number of like one shots, two shots, etc. That you've run, and I know that you because you've put that out there and it's like the PG thirteen star rating, and people who are playing your games know that. It's like when you're running the um, the Conan sort of mini campaign that you ran. Uh, you, you know there's the the move in that way you can like chop someone's head off and you can like hold the head up to like their like friends and be like oh you want some of this you really want some of this and you can like intimidate them and i did that a few times in your game but because i know it's a pg 13 star game the way i do my descriptions of it is more muted than it might be in a different game so you can you can still find ways as a player to do what you want within that sort of framework but having it there helps you know like what's appropriate for that group so if i was playing in like a, a no holds barred like blood and gore style game my description of me like holding up this like severed head will be very different than if it were in a pg-13 game but i've still done the same sort of action okay so we're going to move on to sort of like the pre-campaign like jobs or tasks you undertake at the start so you've got your campaign ready to go you've got your players ready they're all committed to like turning on playing like weekly bi-weekly or whatever uh, we've touched a bit on potentially producing a setting gazetteer uh, in previous topics but these are just a few things i think you may need to consider before you actually like do that first session so one of the first things for me is how much of the setting like the campaign setting do you want to make the players aware of how much investment do they have to put into like knowing about your setting um go go on go on go on um, matthew you're, you're, you're my hero on this one <laughs> hey um for me i always think less is more in this case in the beginning i, I don't like to overwhelm players with like there's been 13 ages in this setting, and I shall cover them all before <laughs> session one. Hey, hey, you might be playing a game where you want to do that, okay? Maybe you are. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, and, and more power to you if that is the case. Um, so I, I kind of like, I like to show, not tell sort of thing. I like the place to discover things about the world themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what we're saying as well about setting the expectations for the type of game yeah. you're running is very important here as well because if you've got loads of people playing and they're all you're like all right we're going to run this big like fantasy historical epic that covers like the seven ages of man or whatever and, and the players are all like yes we are on for that then potentially like a sort of larger like history overview might be something you'd feasibly want to do for that game because you know your players are interested in it. Whereas if you're so, like, so, we're running like a, yeah. a short run campaign, you're playing like martial artists, so we're going to like kick butt and take names, you probably don't need like the 6,000 years of like history of the campaign world laid out. What, what I've done in the past a few, a few times, not, not like loads, I don't have quite the experience that, that you gentlemen have, um, is I've looked at the characters, who, what, they, what they've actually made, the characters they've made, and saying, okay, so this is a wizard, mm -hmm. as an example. This person will know things about some cities and cultures, and I'll, I'll make a little blurb and send it to them individually for them to look at. So they have that knowledge ready to go if they want to read it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I... F that's a very good point. And one of the things I find quite handy in that, and obviously we could do an entire podcast on, like, campaign world creation. That's not the focus of this podcast episode. But one of the things I always like is to... Um, 
encourage the, the players to get sort of involved in like embellishing the world details it's one of the reasons i like dungeon world it's a very good game for that there's the certain like moves that you can do where you can make like an intelligence role and be like you know certain facts about the campaign world and it encourages you as the gm if you've not got anything prepared like say um say one of the players goes oh um what are the elves like in this setting and you've like not got much prepped for the elves on the fact they're all mysterious and magical like elves tend to be you might turn around to them and say like oh well you're an elf you come from you come from like the nearest elven settlement what's it like and you can like fold that into your game so that means that you don't have to have so much prepped and down straight at the start and also you're incorporating player ideas into the fabric of your campaign setting and getting them more involved. Okay, so does anyone else have any thoughts on campaign gazetteers or like how much setting details you should give to the players? I, I just want to say to my own defense that I don't write, like, when you go buy a gazetteer for a fantasy world, I'm not writing that. I tend to focus on the present time. And mostly on uh, on on characters more than uh, but then again I, I tend to run games that takes place in our world so i will highlight if there's any differences between this world and our world our world and um, not go into specific details about oh in 1948 this happened yeah i mean I, i'm a big fan of sort of starting on a local scale and then like building outwards in a game so you define the sort of immediate area and what's going on there so to use a sort of standard fantasy setting you might say like oh this is like the local village your characters live in and this is what's going on now in the surrounding area and you put a few hints and and sort of like leanings about the history but nothing too deep then as the game goes on if the player characters are like, oh, yeah, there's that ancient temple nearby, let's go and investigate that, you can then like bring a little bit more of that history in, but it's being brought in in response to player action rather than me just sort of sitting there and like handing all this information down from above. Okay, so I think another important thing to move on is how easy is it going to be for the players to access the rule system of whatever game you're running and that links into like how much the rules cost for whatever system you're running because i always think it's handy for the players to at least have the basic rules of whatever game you're running so they can look, i don't think it's 100 percent necessary especially if it's a shorter term game but if you're expecting the players to sort of like gain an understanding of these rules I think it's handy for them to at least have access to a copy of the rules. In, it depends on the game you're running and how you tend to have access. If it's a, if, if it's a physical game you're running, then it does no matter whatsoever. You can hand them the book, and if you've come prepared, you would have like cheat sheets and things like that. You know what you need to actually play the game right there. So once again, depending on the game, it depends on the game you're running. If it's one that's light-hearted enough, they can just hand them cheat sheets, it's fine. If it's a complex game, you're probably going to have to be up front of being like, hey, we're running this game. You may want a copy of the book. If you don't, we'll work it out. Usually, I try not to give a free my, my, my copy of the PDF to players, or I'll give certain pages to players to encourage them to buy the book, especially if I like it. But if it's a real-life game, I'll just give them my book and be like, look, here you go, just make a character from that, we'll work it out from there. 
Yeah, I mean, because I tend to run like more online games nowadays. I mean, for myself, if the obviously if like there's like a free PDF copy of whatever game I'm running available, I'll send them a link and say, like, oh, you can get a copy here. It nowadays because you can get like fairly sort of reasonably priced PDFs of most games. You can always like link to them on Drive Through or whatever and say like, oh, you might want to think about getting a copy of it. But what I'll try and do at the start because I don't want to say to people like, look, you've got to pay this much to like play in the game that's that's not really something i'm interested in at the start of the game i'll at least try and have like a cheat sheet so i can say that like, right here's a cheat sheet which has got the basic rules on it and i think that's a good practice even if they have got a copy of the books it's easy to reference um, i know there's a uh, there's a website called like cheatography that lets you like make very simple cheat sheets i did one for our lamentations game so that like even though like lamentations you can get like a no art version for free I was like, right, there's a cheat sheet. It's got all the rules you'll need to get going. You don't have to worry about it. You can just use this cheat sheet. I think that's a very good thing to do. But I do think it's also handy to to give them access to a copy if they want to get hold of a copy. But I, like I say, I don't agree with like giving them out, like, like doling out your PDFs or whatever. But if you can at least point them in the direction of where such things are available, I think that's a good start. What's actually really interesting before you go into Dennis is that I've noticed a lot of games when I advertise, people who tend to play it have already got the book, or they are like they go, oh, I'll just go get the book because they're not gonna, they're not gonna ask you for that PDF. I mean, like as far as, as, far as I've, I've seen anyway, they don't go, I don't have a PDF of the game, can I have it, please? And and I'm like, okay, fine, you can have it there, but no one has ever asked me. They've just gone, yeah, I'll play. I now have a copy. Anyway, Dennis. I think that's the advantage of the of the OSR games because they always tend to come with a my boy a, a, a either free or pay what you want version of of the system. So that's a that's a very good way of doing that because it is it can be a hurdle, right? Uh, especially if uh, yeah we're playing this system and there's uh, 24 books out for it and. Go buy them. That's not, not a good option, I think. Unless you sell books. Matthew, what do you think about this whole subject? While we're on the subject. Could you just rephrase the question for me? We moved on. How do you deal with... Since you run so many campaigns, I'd like to know, how do you deal with players... <laughs> who don't have a copy of the rules you have. Do you provide them a cheat sheet? Do you send them something secret? Do you... Do you share the PDF and not tell anyone? Uh, I tend to send them, like, screenshots of their character stuff. Or I might make them, like... I, I have in the past uh, shared, like, custom PDFs, which just have, like, everything they need in there, their spells and everything. Yeah, I mean, but I always encourage them to buy the books. I said that, that is an important point because a lot of a lot of games in the actual book they'll have like a sort of like a character creation summary or mm. something like that in the book. So then what Matthew said it is a good potential sort of stopgap. You know, like take a screenshot of that one page and be like, right, here's the character creation summary, here's the rules summary, here's where you can get the book from. It's like a nice sort of middle ground. In one of my home games, this is not one that I run, that I play in, uh, we put money into like a pot essentially and just buy things that for the group. So we have like copies of books that are just communal. But obviously that's that's choice, not necessity. 
Okay, so does anyone else have anything to say on like sort of pre-campaign, like starting tasks? Anything else anyone wants to bring up that you think you might have to do prior to that first session? Well, we've covered expectations, scheduling, um, creating a promo, um, finding players who aren't trash. I mean, let's just assume for the moment that we're talking to people who aren't trash. <laughs> let's just give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, I suppose you just give them for advice on character creation. That's kind of thing you've got to talk. Someone's never played before, actually talking them through how to make a character. Well, I think that dovetails like nicely onto my next point, which is creating characters. Now, what one thing a lot of people do is run, and I do this myself, is run like a session zero. Well, like, you basically get everyone together, you create your characters together, you maybe do like a little bit of a, little bit of a sort of mini adventure at the start, so everyone gets like a little bit of a taster of how the game's going to go. And I know certainly what I like to do in games is I like to say that for the first three sessions, if you design your character and it's maybe not working as you thought it would, or it's not what you expected, you can sort of tweak that character for the first three sessions. But after that, it's it's set. Because you should have an idea by then of like what you're playing and how it's going to work. Um, how much value do you guys think there is in a session zero? Uh, back on the whole idea of social communication, um, I think session zero is very good for you to know which two players do not like each other or who is not going to get along with who. It's really easy to get a group of people together, but if you recruit from like different walks of the earth and they get together and they start at session zero, you're going to see already like, oh God, these two guys are not going to get along. I need to end this now. At least you have some all like, these are not going to get along. I have to remember this when we go through the game. A session zero, I normally don't like doing session zeros. I'm like, yeah, let's just get in the middle of it. It's like, whoa, be fine. But it's when you're playing a long-term campaign, it's a really good way to see if a group is going to gel and not just like not work out if everyone is together in the same room or hang out and they start talking about the characters and they start moving forward with it with the way they interact it's a way to see how the campaign's going also you pick up who is who is the shy one who doesn't talk much and who's the guy who talks way too much yeah i mean i think that comes back to what we we're saying before about sort of spotting problems in advance or potential issues in advance and sort of heading them off before they escalate and become like really serious like game ending issues okay so does anyone else have anything to say about like session zeros how you run them have you had success with running them in the past etc i think uh, i always think them oh sorry go ahead dennis um i I think session zero is a good um way to uh, Established a group dynamics, like uh, to decide. Let's say we are playing a D and D game, but are we gonna? Are we out for loot? Are we out for doing good? Are we villains? All that kind of stuff. And then you can make characters that fits in with the group dynamics. I think that's uh, that's an important step, and would save you for any potential headache down the line. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd very much agree with that. I mean, certainly for like. Johannes is like stars without number game that he's just started. Obviously, those of us who are playing in it, we all got together and we talked out because obviously, sci fi, there's an awful lot you can cover under that sort of umbrella, that genre. And we discussed what we wanted to do, what sort of characters we were thinking of playing, how they could come together, whether we wanted to have a spaceship, what sort of jobs we wanted to be doing, etc. Whether what, what sort of setting we wanted, and all of that was sort of worked out communally up front. 
So it wasn't just a case of like we all gen the characters separately. They just chucked them together and went, oh, it'll, it'll work out somehow. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be slightly more controversial here. Ooh. Ooh. And say that for an online campaign, uh, Session Zero is mandatory. You need it. You need it, right? Because unlike a, unlike um, a face-to-face, you may have scheduling across different continents. You may have tech issues, mic, you know, video, uh, platforms you're going to use, like Roll20, Skype, um, Discord. These are all things you need to sort out before the game starts. Um, and things, things like people who want to use overlays, all these little things. If you do that in a session zero, get it all out the way, then you get straight into the game. And it's smooth running from there, I always find. If you don't, then it's very it can stop and start as people are like, oh, how do I upload this? Or um, I can't get into Skype, my audio's not working, and that just drags the session down. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's good to try and get like as much of that stuff out of the way early doors then once it is out of the way you can all just concentrate on enjoying the game and having fun which let's face it is what it's all about at the end of the day as well as a discussion about the actual game but lloyd put it so eloquently i didn't really feel the need to repeat <laughs> so I did to I, okay so the, the last point i have down is how important to, do you guys think it is for the pcs to know each other before the games are in character or are you happier with people just like jenning the characters separately and then working out how they know each other assuming they do in play i feel like that's another thing that's based on the game and all that stuff that came mm. before because like if you're running if you're running like a dresden files accelerator game you need everyone to know who each other are because you can connect each other in some kind of way so you can figure it out if you're running D, i'm making a fighter i'm in a wizard whatever we'll just turn up let's go so it depends on the game Okay, well, those are all the points I have, unless anyone else has anything to add. Do any of you guys have any other points you want to bring up with regards to sort of getting a campaign game up and running? Uh, in, in terms of going back to setting expectations, uh, if it's, if you are the GM, this is just more so for them, you, you may... I, just, I can't want to give you some advice, and you may find that your campaign will not reach its conclusion because these things tend... Campaigns rarely meet their satisfactory end. And, you know, if that happens, don't beat yourself up. Just move on, start something new, and try again. Because that's just... It's sometimes it's the nature of the beast. People leave, um, schedules change, and it's no fault of the GM. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, like you say, the, these things often happen. They're, they're sometimes unavoidable. But... As long as like, your players and yourself enjoyed the sessions you did have, and you're probably going to have learnt a lot from running that game, that like you say, just don't beat yourself up about it. These things happen, you know. To, to use the old adage, it's better to sort of shoot for the stars and fall short than like not to have done at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'd suggest, John. I mean, this is obviously your podcast. This is purely just opinion. But perhaps uh, when you upload this. Uh, attach a few links to places people could could look to find games if they are interested. If this happens to be per- some person's first port of call, happens to be this podcast, where would they go if you have any advice? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good idea. I mean, does anyone have any particular sort of places they'd recommend that uh, someone wanting to start up their first campaign game might want to go to look for players? I was about to say G+, but now I don't know anymore. 
Honestly, it's still a good place to go. If you go on the G Plus community, just look up role playing in some kind of shape or form whatsoever, and someone's gonna be happy. Yeah, just. Depe I mean, yeah. On Facebook, let like, just search in. Uh, Switch and, uh, maybe not Facebook. Maybe, maybe not Facebook. Just gonna put it out there. I mean, I love Facebook is great. I love it and all that. But you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to get past the fact that it's Facebook. Well, that's not really gonna tell people to go to a website that does things like yeah, that. Yeah, but so. we don't have the other place anymore, Lloyd. <sighs> don't remind me. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously social media is a good one. But again, as we've said, you know, you have to sort of put yourself out there and you have to be willing to accept the fact that you may get people who respond negatively or who are perhaps not suitable for the game you're looking to run that's all like par for the course it's part of the territory really you have to sort of like take that risk in order to find the people you do want to be in your game i mean obviously as we said earlier if you're running like a face-to-face -face game like your local game store is potentially a place to go if there's like a local convention to your area it might be a good place to go and i mean even if you're planning on like running a game online you may meet people like face to face at conventions that even if you don't like live nearby normally that you can fight you can meet in person find out if you get on with them if they're like your style of jamming you could then maybe say to them like oh would you be interested in like an online campaign and like keeping this game going or like starting up another game and I don't think you necessarily have to like stick to just one avenue of approaching that. I think that's one of the real benefits of like the online game. You can sort of bring all these different people together. But as Lloyd said earlier, you have to accept the fact that if you bring a lot of people from different walks of life together, they're not always going to get on. And it's better to find that out early doors and resolve it in some way, even if that's saying like, right, okay. I need to like not have some of these people in the game, or I need to like find a different group. At least you'll know then, rather than finding out like three sessions into the game or whatever. Okay, so does anyone else have anything they want to bring up about campaigns and getting campaign games started? Okay, well, if that's it, I think we're pretty much done then, guys. So. Thank you, Lloyd, Dennis, and Matthew, for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for anyone who's watching now and in the future. We will hopefully see you all again soon and do one of these podcasts. Until then, take care and whatever you're playing, enjoy yourself. I'm going to stop the stream now. Okay, the stream is now finished, guys, so you can stop your Audacity recording. Okay, stop my recording in three, two... One. So that's it for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions for things you'd like to see in the podcast in future, please either email them to reddicediaries at gmail.com or drop me a voicemail at Anchor. Until I see you next time, whatever you're playing, take care and enjoy yourself. Mm -hmm.